We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. If you're asking questions about God, your faith, or the meaning and purpose of life, we would love to connect with you. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. We hope this sermon encourages you today. Be seated. God longs to dwell with his people. That is at the heart of our faith. It's at the heart of the biblical word. And it's something that we celebrate week after week as we gather together as the people of God. So however you walk in this morning, whatever your relationship is with God, uh, perhaps this is the first time you've been to a church in a long time, or maybe ever. One thing I want you to hear from me and to hear from God is that he longs to be with you. He longs to dwell with you. And he is life. And he's he is what you're actually longing for, even if you can't articulate that. That's been at the heart of this series, um, because you probably didn't walk in wanting to hear about ancient Israel's sacrificial rites. Um, I want you to know, though, that at the heart of the series in the book of Leviticus that we're looking at is this desire of God to dwell with his people. So let's keep that in mind as we get into some of the details that we'll look at even again today. Uh, the, the narrative context, having filled the tabernacle with his glorious presence, God's presence returned to his people after they were expelled from the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. God then begins to speak from the tabernacle and gives Moses instructions about how he is to be rightly worshipped, how people, the people that he has redeemed, how those people can actually dwell safely in his dangerous and holy presence. And that's the, that's the setup for the whole book. So God speaks from the tabernacle, and he speaks about five offerings. He gives instructions to both the laity and the priests about five offerings in chapters 1 through 7. And the offerings are meant to show the way to be in his presence. Actually, the Hebrew word for offering is derived from the root in Hebrew that means to approach or to draw near, which just suggests that that's the whole point of an offering that God gives, is that his people could draw near to him and know him and abide in his presence. That's what God longs for. Last week, we began looking in more detail at the uh, offerings by, by looking at the purification and reparation offerings in chapters four, five, and six. Uh, today, we're coming back to chapter one, to the beginning of Leviticus, and what is called traditionally the burnt offering or the whole burnt offering, what I will call the ascension offering. Uh, the name, actually, the, the Hebrew word that names this offering means, quite literally, to go up or to ascend. It's gotten the name burnt because it is the offering which is all burnt up on the altar, but it, it is literally named um, to go up or to ascend, and so I want to follow many scholars in taking that name for this offering. So when you read burnt offering in chapter one, just follow with me, ascension offering. And th this, actually, the ascension offering says something so deep about how God's people can approach him and live with him and dwell in his presence. And that's what we're going to dig into this morning. There, just to structurally lay out this, this text, chapter 1 of Leviticus, there's three basic parts. There are three essentially repetitive um, recount, accounts of the ascension offering. First, with a bull, the most expensive, and then with a sheep or a goat in verses 10 through 13, and then in verses 14 to 17 with a bird, a turtle dove or a pigeon. 
Um, and again, this just shows God's deep desire that all of his people, whatever their socioeconomic status or ability, would be able to come into his presence. Uh, and each of these uh, three sections deals with the same kinds of patterns that we saw we began to look at last week, uh, these rites of the sacrificial system, of these offerings. There is the presentation rite, bringing the animal, the blameless animal, before the ta- to the entrance of the tabernacle. There's the hand-leaning rite, which we talked about last week, of the worshiper identifying him or herself with the animal. Then there's the slaughtering rite, of the actual killing of the animal. Then what is called in the literature the blood manipulation rite. And it sounds terrible, but they take the blood of the animal and do things with that blood. In this case, it's, it's um, spread on the altar or it's, it's um, thrown, the, the, the blood in verse 5 is thrown against the sides of the altar. And then there's the burning rite, and that will be our focus because this is the kind of burning um, sacrifice par excellence. So that's what we're going to focus on. And then there's the communion rite. You don't need to remember any of what I just said, but that was for those of you who really want to get in the details. Um, what a, in the introduction here, I just want to make the point, the observation, that this is the primary offering. And I, I want to give, substantiate that in just a few ways. This is, this is the marquee offering that God gives to his people. Why do I say that? Well, first, it's the first thing that God says to Moses, right from the, the presence of the tabernacle. And so it has that, that pole position, that primacy of place, that when God begins to speak about how to dwell with him, He actually begins with the ascension offering. Second, it's the most common offering in the Old Testament. It's the most common offering. It's regularly used, and it's often combined with other offerings as well. Third, it is the offering from which the bronze altar in the courtyard of the tabernacle derives its name. So this is significant because that altar in the courtyard is what is the kind of central location of the worship of God's people in the sacrificial system. And seven times in the book of Leviticus, seven times in the book of Exodus, and four times in the Chronicles, first and second Chronicles, this altar is referred to as the altar of the ascension offering. So that says this is significant. It's the thing, uh, it's the, the offering after which the altar is named. Another point I would make is in Exodus 29, we read that the burnt offering would, would be the kind of bread and butter of Israel's daily worship. So morning and evening, every day, two lambs would be offered as an ascension offering to the Lord, one in the morning and one in the evening. That is, this was the thread running through Israel's approach to the Holy Lord of glory. And also, above all others, this offering symbolizes the pathway into God's presence. As I said, offering means to draw near. This is all about the system of worship. It's all about the people of God drawing near into the presence of God. And it's what happens in this offering that shows us that pathway more clearly. It is, of course, the case in all five of the offerings that there is an element of burning that goes on. But it's this offering uniquely in which the entire sacrificial animal is offered up in fire on the altar. We're going to focus in on that dimension for our time together, drawing a bit on the work of Old Testament scholar Michael Morales and many others as well, but um, just to see how this offering, and, and particularly the journey of the sacrificial animal in this offering, so either the bull, the sheep, or the goat, or the bird, reveals to us something integral and central about our approach, even today, 
to the living Lord God. And we're going to look at this in three steps. Consecration, transformation, and ascension. So consecration, transformation, and ascension. So consecration. Complete devotion and absolute self-surrender. That's what's signified in this offering, uniquely, I should say, by virtue of the fact that the whole sacrificial animal is placed on the altar, save the skin. In chapter 7, we learned that was given to the priest as compensation for his work. But the whole animal is placed on the bronze altar. Verse 9, if you look with me, if you want to have the text open. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering. And then it says a food or the footnote, which is, I think, better, an offering by fire. Here's what this suggests, this first step. To be rightly related to the Holy Lord of glory requires complete consecration, complete setting apart, handing over, being wholly yielded to him. The Jewish rabbi who writes on these sacrifices, Joshua Berman, writes that the ascension offering in the sense that the animal is offered up fully, symbolizes our willingness to devote our entire existence to the service of God. Obviously, this is costly, isn't it? The consecration of oneself entirely to God is deeply costly. There's nothing that we could give more than our life. And what God is symbolizing and saying through the ascension offering is that's exactly what he requires. The whole of you. Not 30%, not 75%, not 10%, or 95%, but all of us, all that we are to him. And there's tremendous cost in that. All of our lives are given up to the Lord. All of it is handed over. God is deeply honored by costly acts of devotion. And this ascension offering is the most costly of the five because the entire animal is placed upon the altar. And it is a fitting response, this costly offering, thus given primacy of place, to the great redemption of the Holy Lord of glory of his people. Now, remember, the, the context of Leviticus is that they're at Mount Sinai. How did they get to Mount Sinai, and where did they come from? They were in slavery, in bondage, in Egypt. They were doing slave labor, backbreaking labor, making bricks without straw in Egypt. And God heard their cries. And God, in a miraculous way, came through Moses and Aaron and intervened in their situation and redeemed them out of slavery through the Red Sea, through the wilderness, and brought them to Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, God comes down in glory at the, at the summit of the mountain and then gives the instructions to build the tabernacle. And then they build it, and the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. And then God speaks and says, this is how to worship me. What, what I'm getting at here is the costly act of devotion that the Lord requires is quite simply a fitting and right and joyful response to what the Lord has done in our lives and in their lives long ago. The rescue and redemption is the backdrop for this kind of costly offering. Consider Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6. 
You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God with your body. God has redeemed you and rescued you. And so God is honored and pleased as we offer our whole lives up to him and symbolize that through costly acts of devotion, essentially. Luke 21, you remember when uh, Jesus is with some of his disciples and he sees these people putting money into the temple offering. And then this poor woman comes and she places two coins into the offering box. And Jesus observes, he says, look, I tell you that this woman put in more than all of them, for they all contribute out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. So costly. That, those two coins were much like the burnt offering, or the, this ascension or burnt offering in Leviticus 1 of the animal. All of it given up as a symbolic representation of all of the worshiper given over in devotion and worship to the holy Lord of glory who had rescued the worshiper out of slavery. That's, that's, what, that's what this woman did, Jesus is saying. Or do you remember this moment just before, the night before Jesus is crucified, or maybe in that week, in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, when this woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head, we read in Mark 14. Remember the disciples' response? They were outraged. This should have been sold, and the money could have been given to the poor. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. This woman has done a good and fitting thing. She has anointed my body for my burial. She has demonstrated a costly act of devotion to me because she knows who I am. And he says to his disciples that wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has been done will be told in memory of her. Why did Jesus want this woman's action to be known to the world when he was proclaimed? Because her action demonstrates the costly act of devotion, the complete self-offering that God requires for us to know him and walk with him and be in his presence. That alabaster flask of ointment was just a token of this woman saying, all that I have is yours. All that I am is yours. I belong to you in total, incomplete. Completely. To, God, to offer God something that, is, um, that doesn't cost us much is quite unacceptable, actually, to the Lord. We are not to bring God things of little or no value, but rather gifts that are fitting for a king. You might remember at the end of 2 Samuel, David has an opportunity to offer to God sacrifices because um, uh, Aruna, the Jebusite, offers to give him oxen and his threshing floor to make ascension offerings to the Lord. And David says this to Aruna. He says, no, you can't give it to me, but I will buy it from you for a price. And then David says this, I will not offer ascension offerings to the Lord my God that cost me nothing. As a cost, this act of consecration, of giving over. Consider the history within Christian worship throughout the last 2,000 years of using the best and the most refined of our ability to express realities that are beyond us in poetry, in music, in visual arts, in the beauty of architecture. All of these things are an effort of God's people to respond with the costly, in the most costly way that they can to reflect the worthiness of our divine king. Consider the founders of Park Street Church who 213 years ago in 1809, built this very building that we are seated in today to worship the Lord. And when they built it, it was the tallest structure in North America. 
You might think, well, why? That was pretty extravagant. And yeah, it was. You could probably read that in a wrong way. But I think it's an amazing expression of this very principle that the Lord is worthy of costly acts of devotion. That's how God longs for us to relate to him. These vol- and they're voluntary, by the way. There's no imperative. Interestingly, in last week, in the reparation and purification offerings, there's an imperative. If you do this, particularly sin unintentionally, then do this. But here, in verses 2 and 3 of Leviticus 1, there's actually no imperative. There's an assumption that God's people will worship him in, in this way. But we can draw from that that these are voluntarily offered up to the Lord. This costly worship. Why? Because we're so, in, we're so enraptured in the goodness of God. Remember Psalm 126, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad, or we are filled with joy. And so the ascension offering is to be a joyful, voluntary offering up to the Lord for all that he has done. So that's the first step, is consecration. The second is transformation, or what we might call sanctification. The word used in verses 9, 13, and 17 which is translated for us as burn, and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar, verse 9, repeated in 13 and 17, is actually a unique word in Hebrew that's used only for for burning in a religious context. There was another word in Hebrew that could be used for burning things outside of any religious or worship context, but this word was unique. And it actually has a, a slightly more nuanced meaning than just burnt. It actually means to burn up in smoke or to turn into smoke. Robert Alter has done some wonderful translations of these Hebrew scriptures. And in his translation of Leviticus 1, he translates this word or this phrase, turn it all to smoke. Turn it all to smoke. Why this is important, I would suggest, is the emphasis here is on the animal being transformed into smoke, not just on being burned up and gone or evaporated. And this transformation of the animal, of the sacrificial animal, has a purging or sanctifying effect on the animal. Yes, the animal is blameless relative to the worshiper that the animal represents, but relative to the Holy Lord of glory, the animal is still bears the stamp of earthliness and death. And there is a need for the animal itself to be purged from the realm of death and impurity. In the 19th century, German scholar J.H. Kurtz wrote this, and if anything earthly is to be offered to God, even though it be relatively the most holy and pure, as this animal was, it requires, first of all, to be purified, refined, and sanctified. The dross must be removed and the true metal exhibited in its genuine refinement. And that was done by the purification and refinement affected by the fire. Transformation. Purging. It's the fire that does this. What does the fire represent? The fire represents the very presence of God. God himself is represented by the fire. In Leviticus 9, when the whole sacrificial system is actually inaugurated and the priesthood is inaugurated, what happens at the end of Leviticus 9? The fire comes down from heaven and burns up the offering on the altar. It's the presence of God that refines and purifies and purges the impurities of God's people to bring them into his presence. God, as we've 
commented in this series, our God is a consuming fire. So that's the second movement of transformation. And the third is of ascension, which is really the telos or the end of all of the system of worship that God has set up for his people then and now. God longs to dwell with his people. Having been consecrated and given over, having been transformed through the fire into smoke, the smoke now rises into the presence of the Lord. Verse 9. And the priest shall burn all of it on the altar or turn all of it into smoke on the altar as an ascension offering, an offering by fire with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. The sacrificial animal is transformed into smoke so that it might be transferred into the presence of the holy God of Israel. It is to go up as smoke into his presence. And that is the goal of Israel's worship, consecrated and transformed or sanctified. It is then to ascend and be in the very presence of the living God. The offerings that God puts in place show this pathway into God's presence. Consecration or cleansing. We saw the purification and reparations offerings. Then transformation here in the ascension offering. And then ascension into his presence. And we'll come back next week to the grain and communion offerings, which are as a holy meal, covenantal meal, enjoyed by the people of God in the presence of God. So in sum, this pathway that the sacrificial animal takes in the ascension offering represents our pathway into God's very presence. Of course, the sacrificial animal takes this pathway in the place of, or as a substitute for, the worshiper, that hand-leaning right. We find it here in chapter 1 as well. The offering is to make the worshiper acceptable to the Lord, as we read in verse 3. He brings this offering that he may be accepted before the Lord. And this is presumably, and obviously, because the worshiper is not fully consecrated or sanctified, and so must bring an offering in his stead. In fact, we read in verse 4, to connect to last week, that the, offer, the worshiper shall lay his hand on the head of the ascension offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. The primary purpose in this chapter, at least, of the Ascension Offering is to make atonement for the worshiper because the worshiper has not followed this pathway, has not been consecrated, not been transformed, and able, therefore, not to ascend outside of the sacrificial substitute of this animal that takes the pathway of full consecration, full offering up, full transformation, and then full ascension into the presence of the living God. And the offering is effective. And that's given to us in this anthropomorphic language that it was a pleasing aroma to the Lord, this offering, as the smoke comes up into the presence of the Lord. The offering was accepted. This kind of whole offering, this whole consecration pleases God. This is what God, this assuages in Genesis 8, where we see the ascension offering first mentioned after the flood. It assuages God's wrath against the world that has rejected his rule. In 2 Samuel 24 that we've already looked at, it assuages the wrath of God, which broke out in a plague against Israel for David's taking a census. It is an effective offering because it reflects the desire of God that he be approached in full and complete devotion and surrender in a costly manner with all that we are. So the sacrificial offering shows the way in the place of the worshiper into the presence of God. So, of course, as with all of these offerings, it is Jesus 
who is the embodiment and fulfillment of the ascension offering, much as he is the embodiment, as we saw last week, in fulfillment of the reparation and purification offerings. So too is Jesus the fulfillment and greatest picture of the ascension offering as well. Consider, let's go through this pathway for a minute. Let's consider Jesus. That's who we long to hear about as we gather. That's who we long to be devoted to. Jesus is the sacrificial animal who opens up the pathway to God on our behalf. He is consecrated. What does he say in John chapter 4 to his disciples when they come back from town? He's at the well. He'd been there with the Samaritan woman. He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. But perhaps, and indeed, the greatest example and embodiment of consecration, of complete devotion, of whole surrender to the living, to the Holy Lord of glory is Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he embodies the pathway for true humanity to be in the presence of God. When he says to the Father, with the weight of the world's sin bearing down upon him, with knowledge of what would be asked of him as he would go to the cross the next day, Jesus says, Father, not my will, but yours be done. I belong whole and complete to my Father, Jesus says. He is consecrated in absolute self-surrender. Transformed, that was the second step of the sacrificial animal. Well, how was Jesus transformed? You say, well, wasn't he sinless already? And in fact, he was, as the Bible makes abundantly clear. But the author of Hebrews actually writes this. He says, it was fitting that God should make the founder of their salvation, that is Jesus, perfect through suffering. Now, we kind of wonder at that. Wait a minute, wasn't Jesus perfect? Well, yes, he was. But in a sense, we can read this in two ways. One is that Jesus' untested obedience is now proved and tested as he walks through suffering. But I think perhaps the better way of reading that word of becoming perfect there is that Jesus was perfected for his unique vocation as our high priest. That it was going through the sufferings and walking through them in obedience that Jesus experienced all that we would experience as the people of God living in a sinful and broken world. And that Jesus was being perfected by the Father through those sufferings to, to embrace the unique role that he would have as our great high priest who lives forever to make intercession for us at the right hand of the Father that we might come into his presence. Jesus indeed was transformed in his life. But also, more than this, Jesus was transformed through his death and resurrection, alluding to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus' natural body is sown perishable and in dishonor and in weakness. It was raised from the dead as a spiritual body, a body belonging to the new creation, raised imperishable in glory and in power. And that new body then ascends to the heavenly throne. And that's our third point about Jesus, the perfected and transformed Jesus ascends to the throne of his Father. And I think this is interesting in Acts chapter 1, the, the, the account of Jesus' ascension, we read that he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. Well, what does a cloud remind you of? Smoke. That might just be preacher's license, I know. <laughs> but I would say God's word is so rich indeed. It's the cloud. 
reflecting back to the ascension offering, the smoke that's wafting up into the presence of the Lord. Jesus goes up in the smoke, in the cloud, to be at the presence of the Lord as the one true ascension offering, acceptable before the Father, wholly consecrated, wholly transformed, wholly now ascended and in the presence of God. And what does that mean for you and me? Because we know we will never be 100% consecrated. We will not, not until we see him face to face. We know that we'll never be fully transformed. But even now, as we come to Jesus by repentance and faith, as we offer to him our lives, as we respond to his amazing work in the cross and the death and resurrection that he went through on our behalf, we too are consecrated in Jesus. We are called now in the New Testament saints. That means set apart ones. That means consecrated ones. We are transformed. We are no longer merely flesh and blood. What, is, what does Jesus teach in John chapter 3? You enter the kingdom of God, how? Not by being the same person that you always were, but by being born again of water and the Spirit. You, if you are in Christ, you have been transformed, quite literally, from death to life. And then we ascend in Jesus. What does Paul say in Colossians 3? For you have died. And your life is what? Hidden with Christ in God. Or in Ephesians chapter 1, that we are seated with him in the heavenly places. Now these are mysteries deep and profound to contemplate and dwell upon. But the reality is from the biblical word that we too have been consecrated in Jesus. We've been transformed in Jesus. And we have ascended to the throne of the Father in Jesus. And we are in God's presence. And now Wonder of all wonders is the Spirit of God dwells in us as we are now the tabernacle or the temple. Yes, the effectiveness of the ascension offering is profound because the great sacrificial lamb is Jesus himself and we are brought in and this is fulfilled. And if anything, when we come to a place like Leviticus 1, we should just be undone in worship of God's amazing provision on our behalf. But I want to say to you this, that I think one of the ways, as I close, that, that this passage can be so helpful, and as we come to Leviticus, that it can be so helpful, is yes, we celebrate the amazing gift of God in Christ as the true ascension offering, in whom we too have been consecrated, transformed, and ascended into the presence of God. And yet, and yet, there is room to, room to grow. There is a road to travel. There's an invitation from God as we consider these texts to continue to walk into the fullness of that which God has provided for us. This is what I mean. I, have, I am concerned in my own life and just in our cultural moment that the worship of God has become diluted in some ways because of the profound provision of God through the cross and resurrection of his son. What I mean to say is that the cost, of, the cost of this offering was so tremendous. And that is to produce in us that the dynamics of that in our soul is to actually just undo us in joy and gratitude and thanksgiving, which then is to bring out of us a greater offering, a greater consecration, a greater transformation into holiness. And yet often I fear sometimes that it actually leads us to a more casual view of worship than what God even produces for his people in the Old Testament. And so as we celebrate the provision of God in the ascension offering for our, on our behalf, in Christ, these things are true. I also want us to remember the calling on our lives 
even for whom these things are true, is to step into them more and more. And I want to finish with Romans 12, which we read. Paul says, I I urge you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to do what? To present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, as your act of logical or rational or spiritual worship. You who have been brought in, you who are now the tabernacle, you who are now the temple, you in whom the Spirit of God now dwells, all not because of your own doing, but because of the atonement and the substitute of Jesus on your behalf, you who have received such tremendous gifts, such heavenly treasure, such overwhelming love and mercy and grace and forgiveness, don't respond by just giving him your, your least or, your, or your, the casual bits or just when you have time. But offer to God your whole bodies as a living sacrifice. Offer him everything. Completely sanctify and separate and consecrate yourself to him in your day-to-day life. That's what the ascension offering shows us and calls us into. So just to be practical as we close, think about your life with this holy Lord of glory. You are, in fact, hidden in Christ. Thanks be to God. You have been atoned for through Jesus' sacrifice on your behalf. And in Jesus, you too have been consecrated, transformed, and brought into the presence of God. Celebrate those realities, but then ask yourselves the question as you go through the week this week, are you hearing the exhortation in light of the truth of the gospel to offer everything that you have? Not 5%, 10%, but your whole life. He is worthy of everything. Let's pray. God, we worship you. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you for implanting so long ago the DNA of the gospel in this ascension offering and then expounding it so beautifully and powerfully in your son, Jesus Christ. We are in awe of you, O God. We thank you that we are hidden in Christ. And Lord, we simply unite together and say to you, here we are, send us, take all that we are, every last dollar, every last minute, every thought, every emotion, For your glory, honor, and praise, guide us, our great Jehovah, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.